A warm good morning to all of you. Um, we are on our second week of our series on depression and suicide. And I am from Four Roads. I'm Greg's wife and the spiritual growth director here at River Life. And we really hope that this series helps you find River Life to be a safe place to share and to be yourself and to talk about whatever you need to. And this morning, we get the honor and the privilege to hear from Kyle Mogstad, our district, North Central District's um, Director of Church Multiplication, as well as a brother in Christ here at River Life. So welcome up, Kyle. All right. Well, I'm going to share a little bit of a testimony. When I heard this sermon series... I just felt like God stirred in my heart that I should share some of my story with you. I've never maybe shared it here, um, but I've shared it other places. So I'm going to, that's, that's me, 15-year-old uh, me. And maybe some of you know me from around church. I've spoken a few times. Uh, you probably know my kids because they're around. <laughs> uh, I want to introduce you to, to that kid, though. And that's me at 15 years old. There's some things you should know about me at 15 years old. First of all, I loved Pearl Jam. They were the best. This is the mid-90s. Second thing you should know about me at 15, I played in a very below-average garage band. Like, it wasn't good. It was below-average. So uh, I played guitar in the below-average garage band. And the second, third thing you should know about me is when I was 15, I was really sad. Um, sad maybe isn't a strong enough word. I was depressed. Much of the depression stemmed from living a really conflicted life. Let me tell you what that meant. I was one person with my friends and in the garage band, and I was trying to live a whole different life when I went to church. My dad was a pastor. This was in small town Iowa. I was living these two lives very differently, but inside I was very conflicted. And it led me to being so sad and so depressed. This led to a night where I felt so trapped in these two identities that I actually did attempt suicide when I was 15. The weeks after that, I learned some things. Thankfully, my parents were there for me that night. I ended up in the hospital, ended up seeing a, a Christian counselor for the months afterwards, and slowly kind of detangling this inner double life that I had been living. Um, the two big things I learned through that, that that kid, 15-year-old, learned through that, was that I was actually really loved by my family, especially by my parents. It actually didn't matter some of the mistakes I was making. I was, they were disappointed when they learned some of the stuff I had been doing, but they really loved me. And in those weeks after that, I was really surprised that they loved me so much because in that state of con con conflict inside, I really didn't know that they loved me. But until the truth all came to light, then I actually could experience their love. The bigger lesson that I learned in the midst of that was that Jesus was with me the whole time. Uh, you see, that event when I was 15 led me to seek after and embrace Jesus for real. It 
had been a surface thing for me. And even in those moments when I was praying, and I did pray, God, just, just let me fall asleep so I don't have to deal with this anymore. Jesus was with me, and he loved me. He loved me more than I could imagine, and he still loves me more than I can imagine. And so my story didn't end there. I get to be here. And most people that know me don't think of me as a really down and depressed person. <laughs> like, how did that change over the last 34 years? The truth is it changed because Jesus changed me. And he took my sorrow and he brought me into joy. And he took my sadness and he gave me happiness. And it wasn't easy and it wasn't quick, but it started with me being real. Real with my family, real with my church, and real with God about the struggles that I was facing. And so for anyone here that's struggling, um, you probably don't know this, but Jesus is with you too. And I firmly believe that, and I know that because Jesus was with me at my lowest point and at my darkest hour, and I'm so thankful for that. Um, families of people struggling, uh, my family loved me really well through all this, and I just would encourage you to keep loving well uh, as you are faced with someone who might have been like him, <laughs> me, uh, who's struggling as well. So thanks for the chance to share my story. And if anybody wants to talk to me afterwards or uh, even pray with me or anything, I'm very open to that. This is uh, not a surprising part of my story. I've shared it a lot. I just have never shared it here. So thanks for the chance. To yeah. So in this room, there are probably at least 14 of you who in this past year struggled with clinical depression. And very likely, eight to 10 of you even thought about taking your own life. So you know that it is very real. And as Kyle shared with us, you probably sense your heart racing, thinking, that, that's me. And I want you to know Greg wants you to know, River Life wants you to know that we have people who are here to talk to you. Um, we have a handout that we passed out last week. If you didn't get one, there's more in the back. We also have a bulletin that you can actually go to on our app or, our, or the website, and you can uh, see all the notes. Uh, but on that, that handout, we actually have the names of people who attend River Life who are either licensed or almost licensed therapists who uh, you can reach out to. So please feel free to do that. Um, we also want to just remind you that there's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, and you can call them anytime, 1-800-273-TALK. Or if you don't want to talk to somebody, but you like to text, you can actually text the word HOME to 741-741, and a counselor will come online and text and have a conversation with you. So I encourage you to do that. And today as we talk about depression and how we can help those who are struggling with depression and suicidal thoughts, I want you to just take a deep breath and take good care of yourself. Do what you need to um, to, to take care of yourself. Now, last week, Greg talked to us about suicide. What does the Bible say about it? 
Um, how should we think about it? Um, what can we do? Uh, today, we're going to talk about depression. And some of you might wonder, what does the Bible have to say about depression? Well, the word depression never shows up anywhere, really, in the Bible. But there are lots and lots of words that were used to describe people who had these deep emotions, words like downcast, uh, brokenhearted, full of anguish, uh, crushed in spirit. And when Jesus was praying right before he was going to be killed, um, we are told that he was troubled, he was sorrowful and troubled. And so those are words that we see over and over. And our focus today is really going to be on what do you do? What do you do if a family member or a friend, someone you know, is struggling with depression and struggling with suicidal thoughts? What do we do? Well, thankfully, the Bible also has stories about that. What did people do when their friends and family were struggling? And so today, we're actually going to look at a story. The story is in the book of Job, which is a book in the Old Testament. And in this story, we're going to meet Job. We're introduced to Job, who is a man. We learn that he loved God, that he served God, and he did everything he could to stay away from evil. He was a loving father, a great husband. He had 10 wonderful children. And on top of all of that, Job was very wealthy. If I told you how many camels and donkeys and uh, cattle he had and sheep, you wouldn't even believe it. Uh, but he was very wealthy. He was a great businessman. In fact, uh, the Bible describes him as that he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. The greatest man. But all of a sudden, one day, out of the blue, Job was just going around, going about doing what he was always doing. And in one day, he lost everything. Either his cattle were stolen or destroyed. Fire from heaven came down and destroyed his belongings. Most of his servants died. And worst of all, all 10 children died in a freak housing accident. All in one day. And not long after that, Job himself was afflicted with sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And he was in so much pain and anguish that all he could do was sit on the ground and take a broken piece of pottery and scratch himself. And the greatest man in the East suddenly became the sorriest man in the East. And so I told you that he was a great businessman and a great guy. And so he had some good friends. So we're going to see what happens. So read with me in Job 2, verse 11 through 13. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Nemethite, 
heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So here we see what Job's three friends did when they, when they realized how much he was suffering and how in pain he, he was. First, we see that they heard. Now, back then, they didn't have phones or texting. They didn't have mail. You pretty much had to send somebody if you wanted to get the message, right? But somehow, they all lived somewhere else, and they heard that Job was suffering. And when they heard, they came. In fact, they somehow coordinated it. Say, hey, let's go together, and let's make a plan that when we get there, we're going to encourage him. When they came, they cried. They were emotionally moved. They didn't try to be strong. No, they actually let him see their emotions. And that whole thing about tearing their robes and putting dust on their head, that was their way of saying, we grieve with you. We mourn with you in all these things, all these losses in your children's deaths. We mourn with you. And then they, they sat with him. They came near him, and they, they actually got down to where he was, and they said, basically, we're here with you. We're with you in this. And then they didn't just do that and then leave. They stayed on the ground with him for seven days. Let him know that they were committed to him. And the most wondrous and amazing thing of all, they didn't say anything for seven days. They just sat with him. I'm sure they were all sitting there crying and rocking back and forth together. These were amazing things that Job's friends did. And we can learn from them in this. Now, it's really easy to sympathize with someone when we see them in pain. And we, we can kind of hear their, I mean, just see how much pain they are in. But this weird thing happens when the person starts talking. When they start sharing what's happening in their lives. And if you've ever been with someone who's depressed, they can be kind of irrational. That's what you're thinking as you're listening to them. You're like, wait a minute, all you're talking, you can only see it from your perspective. You're not seeing the bigger picture. All they focus on is the pain. You're like, wait a minute, there are good things in your life too. And so all of a sudden, as people begin to share, it can be harder to be sympathetic and to... Uh, be there with them. So here's what happened to Job. 
So they were sitting there for seven days. They didn't say a word. And then Job 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish. Later on, he also said, I will not keep silent. I will speak out in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Job was frustrated with his situation. He, he had no idea what happened. Like, why is this happening to me? Um, I haven't done anything wrong. Those were essentially his two complaints and that he kept saying to his friends. And so his friends, because they cared for him, they really wanted to set him straight. They did not want him to speak against God, and they did not want him to stay in his depression. So they took turns answering him and trying to put him in his place. Um, and we have nine chapters where they said something. And then a fourth friend came along somewhere along the way and tried to tell Job the same things. So from chapter 4 of Job to chapter 37, we see the friends trying to help Job. Unfortunately, they did more harm than good. Because when we are trying to help someone, it's easy for our own discomfort, our own fears, our own uh, helplessness to set in, and sometimes we panic, and instead of helping the person, we want to rescue them, we want to save them. And when it comes to spiritual matters, we don't want them to think wrongly of God. So oftentimes, we get in the way of helping. We either get scared and run away, or we get scared and we try to rescue, and we try to find an explanation. And so I want you to keep this in mind because Job's friends were trying to do their best. This was the best way they knew how. But here's what they ended up doing. Because hurt people hurt people, some of them became offended or they were uh, impatient with Job, but some of the things they said to him were that they lectured him and they used Bible verses, so they didn't have our Bible then, but they had the scripture, which is our Old Testament. And some of them used verses to say, remember this about God, okay? They accused him of sinning against God. They, because Job was like God, what have I done? Why are you doing this to me? They said, hmm, surely you have sinned. There's something you did, and you're not confessing it. That's why this is happening to you. And so without really knowing, they accused him of sins. They judged him and blamed him for his suffering. Like, they got so upset, they were like, you know what, I think you deserve it. The Hmong people, we have a word, we say, nyasha. It means, yeah, that's, you should, you deserve that. Okay. They got to the point where they were saying that to him. They also became personally offended because Job was so hurt, he, 
he got mad at them too, and then they became offended and defensive. And they became angry and impatient with him after each of them tried to say a couple times. And finally, they misrepresented God to Job. They, they dared to, to speak on God's behalf. And they told Job that, hey, God is like this and like this. And we know that they were wrong because at the end of all of this, God said to his friends, I am angry with you because you did not tell the truth about me to Job. Uh, so in their trying to care for him, don't lose that. They cared for him, and they were trying to do their best. But I think you and I can be like their friends, that we, we want so much to save them and to, to kind of take them out of that depression and to talk them out of suicide that we can do some of these very same things. But I think part of what happened was that they lost their compassion for Job. And when you lose your compassion for someone, you can start then to be more rough with them. And it's easier to take things personally. Uh, before we move on, let me just tell you what, how Job responded to them. Job said, you are no help to me. And he called them worthless physicians. And he said, you are miserable comforters. Okay. I know I've been guilty of being of no help and kind of worthless and sometimes even a miserable comforter. Um, and... Interestingly enough, Job was the one who told them what he needed. Um, in Job 13, verse 5 through 6, he said, If only you would be altogether silent, for you that would be wisdom. Hear now my argument. Listen to the pleas of my lips. So basically he was saying, be smarter, shut up, and listen. Okay, you remember that? If you're with your friend and they're struggling and they're telling you how bad their day is or how worthless life is, just be smart, shut up, and listen. Okay, that's what Job needed from his friends. So helping someone struggling with depression and suicidal thoughts, it's not rocket science. I know most of us are afraid. We're like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. But it, we make it harder than it actually needs to be. What we need and what Job was telling his friends is, you need just to be present and listen with compassion. Listen with compassion. Reminds me of what Henry Nouwen, the great, the late great theologian and writer, how he described that kind of a friend. In his book, Out of Solitude, Three Meditations on the Christian Life, Henry Nouwen wrote, when we honestly ask ourselves, 
which person in our lives mean the most to us, we often find that it is those who, instead of giving advice, solutions, or cures, have chosen rather to share our pain and touch our wounds with a warm and tender hand. The friend who can be silent with us in a moment of despair or confusion, who can stay with us in an hour of grief and bereavement, who can tolerate not knowing, not curing, not healing, and face with us the reality of our powerlessness that is a friend who cares. Now, isn't that a friend that you would like to have? Someone who's able to stay there with you, to be with you and silently listen to you with compassion for you. So I want to take a couple minutes here to actually talk about practical things you and I could do to be present and listen with compassion. Okay, what do we do when we're present and listening with compassion? So I found um, that there's a website, a nonprofit organization called Help Guide, helpguide.org, and they have an article entitled Helping Someone with Depression. And, and many of these suggestions come from them. So again, they're uh, on your bulletin. Their website is there. The article is listed there. But here's what they say. Ways to start the conversation with someone. Because most likely, if someone is depressed and hurting, they're not going to come to you. Usually, you're the one who has to go to them, right? Like Job's friends heard about it, and then they traveled to get to him. So here are some things you can say to start to connect with your friend or family member. You can say, um, I've been feeling concerned about you lately. Right? Notice how you don't say, you've been doing weird things and it's scaring me. No, you say, I've been feeling concerned about you lately. Okay? Or you might say something like, recently I have noticed some differences in you and wondered how you're doing. Or you might say something like this. Hey, I wanted to check in with you um, because you've seemed pretty down lately. Okay, those are really gentle ways of saying, I, I'm noticing. Okay, and it also implies that you care. Not only did you notice but you notice and you care, and you want to be there to listen, okay? Here are some things that you can say in the conversation with them that would be helpful. You may want to tell them that they're not alone. You're not alone. I'm here for you during this tough time, okay? That's sitting down with the person on the ground, right? You might say, even if I'm not able to understand exactly how you feel, I care about you and I want to help. Because a lot of times they'll say to you, 
What do you know you've never experienced? And then fill in the blank with their sorrows. And you can say, I, I don't know. But I, I care about you. Okay. And let them know that they're important to you. You're important to me. Your life is important to me. Okay. The website has other, other things that you can say as well. However, most of us, it's not what to say, but we're actually afraid that we might say something that hurts people. So a help guide actually gives us some things not to say, okay? So here are some things not to say. You should avoid these things. Don't say, dude, this is all in your head, right? Or don't try to placate them by saying, hey, everyone goes through tough times. minimizes their pain and avoid saying try to look on the bright side also avoid saying why do you want to die when you have so much to live for there's more don't say I can't do anything about your situation you're basically saying don't tell me anymore because doesn't matter. I can't do anything about it. And definitely don't say, you just need to snap out of it. Okay. Some of us might not say that, but we might say, I've been sitting with you for a while. You should be feeling better by now. Okay. So we don't want to say that either. And I wanted to add a couple more from my own experience of being with people as well as um, having people sit with me. So here are some things not to say. You, you shouldn't be feeling this way. Or think of all the people who have it worse than you do. That is not helpful when you're in the depths of sorrow. And then, I can't help you if you won't help yourself. This is basically when you start to get impatient that they're not changing fast enough. And then this one, this last one, you just need to pray more and trust God. It is true. We all need to pray more and trust God more. But in the middle of someone's pain, you're basically saying to them, you're not doing these things. That's why you're not getting better. Okay, so these lists, again, are in the bulletin that we'd encourage you to get, or um, the handout will also give you some more suggestions. But what happens if you're sitting with your friend or your family member, and the conversation is such that they begin to tell you that they want to take their own life? What do you do there? So we're going to look at a couple things as well. What you can say and do if someone has suicidal thoughts, first of all, take seriously any and every threat to self-harm. If you hear someone say, you know, I just want to die, or, you know, I'm going to kill myself, you take it seriously, okay, every single time they say it. It's also important to clarify whether they are just saying, I wish 
I wish life would end. Or they're actually saying, I, I want to take my own life. There is a difference. But you need to clarify before you jump to conclusions. And then the other thing, if you don't get anything else about helping someone when they're having suicidal thoughts, it is this. Asking them what they plan to do does not make them do it, okay? Some of us are afraid that if you ask them, oh, you want to kill yourself? And then you're like, I better not talk about it anymore because if I say more, it's going to make them think about it more and then they're going to actually do it and then it'll be my fault. It doesn't work like that. They're going to be thinking about it anyway, okay? So this next one, ask them directly if they have a plan. Do you have a plan? In other words, how did you think you were going to kill yourself? What were you going to use? When were you going to do it? How are you going to do it? And then you ask the question, do you have the means to do it? Okay. If someone says, I'm going to kill myself with a gun, you say, do you have a gun? Do you know somebody who has a gun? Okay. When you know these details, you can help them put a safety plan in place. You can develop a plan. You can say, hey, I'm, we're going to go and we're going to remove the weapons that you have access to. That's the first step. You, you ask them, you know, if you're in your room and you're feeling suicidal, what can you do? Okay, leave the room, go be with someone, text someone, call someone, and don't just say someone, actually put in the name. I will call Greg when I'm feeling, okay? Or I will leave my room and go to my parents' office, whatever, okay? So be very specific. And then connect them to services. Help them get counseling or medication if they need it, but definitely seek out further support for them. And if in the conversation you find that they are a danger to themselves, meaning if they left here and they go to their car or they walk home or whatever and they will put their plan in place, then just call 911. It is better to save a life and have them hate you afterwards because you got in their way than to regret it later, to say, wow, I was scared and I, I, was, I thought it might happen, okay? So just call 911. Greg and I realized that taking two weeks to talk about these really deep topics is just scratching the surface. But we wanted to let you all know that River Life is a place where you can share your struggles. And River Life is a place that I want us to learn how to be compassionate and how to come alongside those um, who, who need our support. There's a great resource that the National Institute for Mental Health has put out. It's a booklet. Um, on depression, 
and it has excellent information. So if you go to that website, you can actually download a PDF of it, or you can order an actual pamphlet of it. Okay. These are, these are heavy topics, but partly they're heavy because we often don't know what to do. And we treat it as taboo, or we treat it as, oh my goodness, that's outside the scope of what we are able to do. And I want to empower each of you to be a friend, to learn from um, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad what to do well and what not to do. And I hope, our, our hope is that this will equip you, uh, not only with some very specific things you can do, but also to allay your anxieties. All right, so let me close in prayer for us. God, thank you that you do not judge us when we feel depressed or worried or even when we wish our life would end. But instead, you meet us. Your word says uh, that you are full of compassion for us and that you will not crush our spirits more. Um, in fact, your word says that you will save those who are crushed in spirit. So I pray that for all of us, Lord, that we would know that we have a place to turn, that we have brothers and sisters, families, friends that we can uh, lean on. And most of all, we have your assurance that you love us and that you are with us always. So I thank you and I lift everyone here to you in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.